If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn over to Isaiah 58. Uh, we're going to be looking again at the book of Isaiah as we continue this series. Uh, this is our, our second scripture reading and the one on which the teaching today is based. Uh, as you've seen uh, throughout, we are kind of in this section of Isaiah that's focused on positive things. Uh, Isaiah is talking a lot about salvation and stuff, but here he kind of brings back some negative today, but only to make the positive shine all the brighter. And, and that's actually a perfect uh, topic for us to think about here on Reformation Day, because after darkness comes God's light. After darkness comes God's light. Let's look at, at uh, Isaiah 58 together. It says, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they said, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression with the pointing finger and malicious talk. And if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your foot from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. 
Think about this. What do you do when you hear somebody shout really loud? Or what do you do when you hear somebody honk their horn or a siren go by? Uh, typically, when those things happen, here's what I do. I, I at least slow down or at least and maybe even stop. If I'm on the street and somebody shouts, I'm, I'm pausing. And next, I'm looking around, okay, because I'm asking lots of questions. Who's shouting? <laughs> Who's honking the horn? Where is the siren coming from? Where is it coming going to? Are they shouting at me? <laughs> Or are they honking at me, and why? If not, who are they honking at? Who are they yelling at? What's going on here? A shout or a honk or a siren, isn't it right, is an alert that something very much needs your attention. Or at least it needs somebody's attention. Isn't that right? Notice way, the way uh, God begins this with Isaiah there in verse 1. He says the same thing. He says, Isaiah, this message that I'm about to give you, excuse me, <clears throat> I want you to shout it aloud. I don't want you to hold back. I want you to say it as loud as you can say it right in the middle of the streets of Jerusalem. I want you to raise your voice like a trumpet. I want you to blow the horn that you have in your hand so that those who hear it would not be able to ignore it. Now, great question. Who's yelling? Why are they yelling? Who are they yelling at? Well, clearly God's yelling. Don't you want to know what it is God yells isn't that important to know what, if God is shouting, it's super important to know why God is shouting. If God's blowing a trumpet, it's really important to know why he's blowing it. And then look, it might seem like a letdown to you. It's somewhat of bad news what he's shouting. It says, hey, I want you to go shout, declare to my people their rebellion. And I want you to declare to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Okay, that's a downer. Isaiah, why do you got to go back to being a downer? You've been so positive lately. Here's the reason. In order to understand what God is saying he's, he's going to do for his people in this passage, you've got to understand why it is he needs to do it. And if I could put it in one word, I'd put it this way. And it's not just because it's Reformation Day. I really think this passage way before today is about Reformation. It's about how God brings light in our darkness. It's about how God shouts to tell us about what's wrong with us, not so that he could condemn us. He shouts to tell us what's wrong with us so that he could recover us and rescue us back to himself in certain very specific ways. That day, uh, 500 years ago, over 500 years ago, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the church, I don't think he realized what he was starting uh, because originally, historians will tell you, he wrote it in Latin, which only the scholarly people understood, or, or the people who ran the church of the day, they, most of them understood Latin. He wasn't intending it for like a worldwide movement, but one of his students quickly grabbed it, translated it into German, and printed it on the newly made printing press, and it got out. It, it got out. It became a shout. It became a, it became a horn that Martin Luther was honking all throughout the land, Listen to what God says. We need, this is the very first thing he says, in fact, in that, the, the 95 Theses. When the Lord Jesus Christ says to us, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life would be a life of repentance. In other words, in the darkness, there is a light. 
There's a way to connect with God's light. There's a way for God's light to fill us and to remake us and change us. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. Uh, if you'll look at your bulletin, there's an outline for you there on the, the page after the scripture reading. Simple questions here. First of all, why do we need reformation? Secondly, what is reformation? Which in order to understand what it is, you've got to know why you need it. Well, that's why Isaiah's shouting, right? And then lastly, how does it work? Why do we need it? What is it? And how does it work? Let's talk about that together. First of all, why do we need reformation? Well, we've already seen it's because of rebellion and sins. But I don't want us to stop there because that's kind of general, right? When you say the word sin or rebellion, it can mean all kinds of things. But Isaiah, or rather God, helps Israel understand specifically the very sin that he's got beef with. And I think we'll see that this is not just Israel's problem. It's a problem that that continues in the human heart today. Look at what it says there uh, in verse 2. This is what the sin is God wants to point out. Day after day they seek me out. And you say, hold on. Paul's right there. You know, the record scratching. (laughs) How is it a rebellion and how is it a sin to day after day seek God out? How could it be? And one of the things we'll notice here, this is a key to understanding the whole Bible. When God calls you to repent, he's not just calling you to repent of the things you already know are bad. He's calling you to repent of things he knows is bad that you don't quite yet know are bad. Amen? A lot of times God can see, not a lot of times, all the time, God can see things we can't see. And God sees the things that he sees far more accurately than we do. And so although it looked like Israel was this nation that was always day after day seeking God, God knew better. Look at what it says. They seem eager to know my ways. Notice that word seem. They seem. The appearance is that they want to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right. And has not forsaken the commands of its God. See that word seem and that word as if? You know, if you're a child of the 90s, as if, right? That was a phrase that we used back then. Meaning, as if. Like, you, you're coming to me acting like one way, but I know better. I can see through you. I know it's only as if it's that way. You're really not that way at all. And God says there's all this religious activity going on. And there's all this, you know, sort of moral activity and moral effort being expended by the people of Israel. But God knows and God cares supremely about what's in their hearts. And as Isaiah says back in chapter 1, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far away from me, says the Lord. God understood what was really going on in them. And God, y'all, he understands what's really going on in us. As a pastor, I have people all the time say to me, well, pastor, I know God knows my heart. I know he knows my heart. And my response is always, yes, he does. But I think you think that's a better thing than it actually is for you. (laughs) I think you think that's a better thing than it actually is for you. A lot of times what we mean by that is, I do a bunch of bad things, pastor, but you know I mean well. And God's cool with it because I mean well. He knows that I mean well most of the time. That isn't the God that Isaiah presents us with. God does not grade on a curve where if you mean well, it outweighs doing bad. 
or meaning well sometimes outweighs meaning not well other times. God doesn't grade that way. Instead, when God sees our hearts, that's actually a terrifying thing. At first, isn't it? It at first is a terrifying thing because God knows how it really is with me. This whole chapter, he says, the people fast, which, I mean, y'all want fasting is, you know, going without food for the sake of seeking God more intensely. It's a beautiful thing to fast. The Bible tells us to fast at different times in our lives. But fasting can be faked, turns out. You can fast on the outside, but not be fasting on the inside. And God sees it every time. It also talks about keeping the Sabbath. You know, keeping that one day in seven that God commands. Again, that's a beautiful thing to do. Because if you don't keep a Sabbath, you're probably not worshiping God in your life. Because that's the way God designed us to devote a certain amount of our time wholly unto Him. The Sabbath day. And yet, the Sabbath can be faked. The Sabbath can be faked outwardly. While inwardly, we're not really resting in God. We're instead depending still on our own works and on our own efforts. That was exactly what was going on in Israel. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near them, but actually they don't really care that God's there at all. What are they looking for? They're looking for God's goods they're using God rather than enjoying God you see the difference using God rather than enjoying him and God sees it look at verse 3 why have we fasted they say and you haven't seen it God why have we been humbling ourselves and you haven't even noticed That why question, in some ways, is the biggest question you could ask. This morning, you know, coming, and I believe this is what church is, coming to God. It's not just about a human, you know, gathering. This is not a spiritual Kiwanis club. Uh, It's not that. This is not a spiritual town hall meeting. This is a meeting with God, directly. And the greatest question you can ask in your own heart is, why am I here? No, really, why am I here? What is it motivating me? Because, you know, before you ever ask the question or answer it, God already knows the answer. It's like he has a spiritual x-ray machine. He is a spiritual x-ray machine (laughs) that sees down into our hearts. Can you imagine if you could see that x-ray of your own heart? Or if we could together see the x-ray of your heart and my heart this morning? Isaiah is saying there's one or two things we can see. We can either see somebody saying, Oh God, I'm here because you are worthy of, of, of being praised. You have shown me such amazing grace and love. I want to devote myself wholly to you. That's, that's a great reason to be here. Or it could be the reason that Israel seemed to be showing up fasting and keeping the Sabbath. Why have you not? God, I'm doing all these things so that you'll do what I want you to do. I'm doing these things you told me to do so that you'll then have to bless me in the way that I want you to bless me. Transactional. Business kind of deal with God where I do my bit, he does his bit. Isaiah is saying that is not at all what the biblical faith is about. What God is calling people like me and you to have with him. 
He's not calling us to have a transactional relationship like this. He's calling us to have a loving, personal relationship. Father to son. Husband, wife. Not I do my part, you do your part. But God, wow, you've done it all. And my little part is just simply to express your praise and my gratitude as best I know how just for your sheer glory and pleasure. So that I might also, yes, experience the blessing that comes from being in your presence, but not at all wanting to find blessings detached from your presence. Do you see that? This is exactly why we need Reformation, y'all. We need it today. It wasn't just something that happened 500 years ago, and it wasn't something that happened you know, 2,000 years ago during the days of Isaiah. It's something that needs to happen all the time. Because God has a spiritual x-ray machine. God doesn't just care about what we look like on the outside. He cares about who we are on the inside. Jesus told two stories about this. He says on the first story, you can know a tree by its fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And you hear that and you think, okay, that means if, I'm, if I look good, that means I am good. That's not exactly what he's saying. Because he tells another story about sheep and wolves. And he says, sometimes there are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. You've got to take those two stories together. Because we know about fruit trees, too. I mean, you can look at a fruit tree... That's bad, the fruit's sour and nasty, and it doesn't look any worse to the human eye from the one that has the best fruit around. It's really only God's deep perception of the heart that can expose us. And it's that deep perception of the heart that we need to become aware of. That's why God says to Isaiah, shout it. Lift up your voice. Raise it like a trumpet. Because I know these people, God's saying, I know these people, they're not going to listen unless you shout it. They're going to think they're all right. They're going to think everything's cool because on the outside it's cool because they're excusing themselves by good intentions. I want you to shout it out loud. I see the way your heart really is. And I'm here to do something about that. I'm not just here to make some behavioral change. I'm here to change your heart, okay? So that leads to our second thing. What is Reformation? It's a genuine change of heart. Not just an outward thing, but an inward thing, which leads to an outward thing. It's an inward thing that leads to an outward thing. Uh, look there at verse, the, the end of verse 3, all the way to the beginning of verse 9, and you'll see he's describing in that whole section what God wants to do in terms of reforming the people. He contrasts, in verse 3, your day of fasting. Do you see that? Talking about Israel. The day of your fasting, where you do what you please, with his day of fasting, verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke. Do you see the difference there? God's saying there's your way and then there's my way. Your way has infected your heart and it's infected your life, even though you've excused it away. But here I am to cause light to shine in the darkness, to take you from life your way, which is dead end, and bring you back into life my way. That's what Reformation is. An inside to out change Based on God's way. Think about this. If you were the kind of person that liked to restore old cars, and say, say you found you know, really cheap a 1970 Ford Mustang, 
But the catch was the Ford Mustang was almost unrecognizable. It was on blocks, no, no tires, no wheels. Actually, you open the hood and there's nothing there. There's no engine, there's no transmission. It's kind of just the frame. But it was cheap, so you bought it, you brought it back to your garage, and you start working on it. What do you have to do to restore the 1974 Mustang? What's one of the first things you got to do? Take it apart, clean it. And, but, but you really do need to somehow look up. Maybe you got to buy one of those books that says 1970 Ford Mustang, and it gives you everything in it about what it's supposed to be like. And that book, I guarantee you, whoever wrote it, it's based on what some engineers or designers designed back in the late 60s, early 70s in Michigan at the Ford Company. They had a plan. They had a design for the 1970 Ford Mustang. And if you're going to take one that has been deformed and you're going to reform it, you got to go back to the source. you got to go back to the original blueprint. And if you can understand that, you can understand what you're asking for if you say, God, reform my life. The Bible teaches us that God in the beginning formed us with his own power, by his own word. And not only that, he formed us according to his word so that we would match his word, so that we would line up with his will. But what has happened through sin is we have been deformed. What was formed has been deformed. And now what God is doing through grace through the wonderful gift of his son Jesus and all the benefits that come to us through Jesus, is he's taking what has been deformed and he's reforming it. But not randomly. And certainly not according to just my own personal ideas of what I should be. He's reforming me according to his plan. And thus, that's why God says to Israel, look at the way you fast. It's all wrong. Look again at verse uh, 3 and 4. You exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. I mean, can you imagine somebody saying, you know, being very angry and grumpy and jumping down your throat and even punching you in the face? And you're like, why are you so mad? Because I'm fasting for the Lord. I haven't eaten all day and I'm, I'm hangry. And that's literally what was going on. The people were outwardly doing their religious duty. But inwardly, man, their heart, whew, it was terrible. They desperately needed God to do something about it. And yet they didn't even notice that they needed God to do anything. Amazing, isn't it? And so God says, look, verse 6, this is the kind of fasting I've chosen. I want you to fast so that you become more like me in your heart. And when you become more like me in your heart, here's what's going to happen. The chains of injustice are going to be loosed. The chains that bind you are going to be broken, and you're going to be someone who goes and breaks other people's chains. Because you're going to be like me. You're going to untie the cords of the yoke. You're going to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. You're going to share your food with the hungry. Provide the poor wanderer with shelter. You're going to see someone naked, and you're going to clothe them out of compassion. You're no longer going to turn away from your fellow man as if they were just a stranger that you had nothing to do with. You're going to see people as your own flesh and blood. And then it says your light will break forth like dawn. God himself will shine on you. Healing will quickly appear. And then my favorite there in verse 9, you will call and the Lord will answer. 
You will cry for help, and God will say, Here am I. Do you see the difference between those two visions? Human-derived obedience to God will just make you more angry. It'll just make you more grumpy. Religious, yes, but a grumpy, grumpy, grumpy Christian, right? (laughs) Because it's basically out of selfish concern. And it's according to selfish whims. It's not taking a 1974 Mustang and making it a new, shiny 1974 Mustang. It's making it some other thing that you invented, which is not a 1970 Mustang. And so in our lives, when we try to approach God and say, God, I know exactly what my life needs to look like. Here it is. Now, please do it. I'll do my part over here, fasting and all this stuff. If you'll deliver for me my blueprint, I'll I'll guarantee you this. Not on my own authority, but on the authority of this passage, God will always tell you no. (laughs) God will always cross your designs and frustrate you no end if that's the way you approach him. But here it says God's vision for our lives is that we would fast in order to have God's presence felt. Now, God's presence is always there. And if you're a Christian, he'll never leave you or forsake you. But don't you know sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't? Here it says God will say to you, here am, I'm here. I'm with you. Here's my light. Because, here, because what you're doing when you come to me in fasting is not trying to figure out life your way. It's not trying to submit to me your agenda so that I can rubber stamp it for you. But it's you coming saying, God, here I am. Do with me whatever you would want. As Mary, you know, the mother of Jesus said, let it be to your servant according to your word, O Lord. That's reformation. Let it be to your servant according to your word. That affects not only the inside, but it affects the outside. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus' two stories. He takes wolves who are just dressed like sheep, and he makes them sheep. Who act like sheep, who follow the good shepherd. He he takes a bad tree that bears stinky fruit. which Which is actually a phrase that Isaiah uses throughout the book, stink fruit to describe what Israel was producing during his day. He takes that kind of tree and he turns them into a good tree, bearing fruit in line with exactly what God had originally designed for them. Inside, outside, my thoughts become different. My desires become different when God's hand gets a hold of me. The words that I say become shaped by his heart the more he gets a hold of me. And my actual actions begin to change in interesting ways. I'm, I mean, as it says here, I'm caring for people who are in need. Or before, I, I couldn't see past my own shadow. Now I see people the way God sees people. Isn't that amazing? This morning, let me ask you this simple question. In coming to God, are you more interested in changing things or in changing you? That's a key right there. That's a key. You say, well, I've got many things that need to be changed. And I'm sure you do. I mean, God's not discounting that. But you can't come to God primarily just to get things changed. Because that's kind of, if you think about it, that's really you kind of coming up with your own blueprint saying, God, sign off on this, please. Tell me what I need to do to get you to sign it and notarize it and make it happen. 
instead of saying, God, it's not things that I want changed. It's not things that need to be changed most in my life. Actually, it's me that needs to be changed. That's what reformation is. Now, lastly, how does it work? Well, it's beautiful here. We don't have time to say everything about these last verses, but look at verses 9 through 14. You'll see a little inside view of the way God's work works in our hearts. Uh, And you'll notice uh, two sets of if-thens, okay? If and then then. Uh, Look at verse 9. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of the finger... Uh, then verse 10, then your light will, sh- will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. All right, that's the first set. Verse 13, if you keep your foot from breaking the Sabbath and doing as you please on my holy day, verse 14, then you will find your joy in the Lord. You will ride on, in triumph on the heights of the land and you will feast on God's inheritance. Now, when we first read that, we might think, all right, I thought God just said he didn't want a transactional relationship. And now it's like he's going back and saying, but there's an if-then. If you do this, then I'll do that. Well, isn't that a transactional relationship? Nope, you got to pay attention to the details of what he's saying is involved in the if-then. Because actually what God is doing here, it's really amazing if you sit with it for a little bit and meditate on it and think about it. God is actually turning the transactional on its head. Because what he says in the if is not just the condition for what happens in the then, it's also the result of what happens in the then. It's almost like a then, if, then, if, then, if, then, if kind of thing. It's like this big cycle of God works and then we respond and God works and we respond and God works. It's this, it's this symphony of grace that God is describing here. When grace invades your life, it changes you. And as it changes you and you express that change, more grace gets showered upon you. God's grace both precedes and crowns our obedience and our repentance before him. That's what he's saying. Because if you notice, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, if you do away with pointing the finger, well, okay, how do we do that? And we'll notice what he says he'll do if you do that. Your light will rise. Night will become noonday. You'll be a well-watered garden, a, like a spring whose waters never fail. Well, hold on. If I'm going to stop doing all the bad things I do, well, it seems like God's going to first have to make me a spring. <laughs> He's going to first have to make me a well-watered garden. He's going to have to change the heart in order for me to even be, be able to do the if. And the same thing you can see there in verse 13. In order to keep the Sabbath and make it a delight to, to love God, not just do my duty for God, God's going to have to cause me to find my joy in the Lord, verse 14. I mean, it's this beautiful thing where, yes, there's an if-then, but you also have to understand that in order for you to even make one move towards the if, God's got to deliver his wonderful, wonderful blessing in your life to begin with. It's it's an amazing thing. Let, Let me break this down the way one writer does. He says there are four main ways that people think God's work happens in our lives, and three of them are wrong. Four ways people think about it, and three of them are wrong. He says, some people think it's God, then me. He says, that's wrong. You can't think, okay, God saves me, makes me a Christian, and then he kind of passes me the baton, and the whole rest of my life is just me getting busy, you know, trying to prove that I'm worthy of what God did for me back then. 
He says, that's not right. People think that way, but it's not right. It's also not God, not me. It's not as if, you know, grace comes in and God does it all and I don't have to do anything. Some people think that way too, don't they? If I'm saved by grace, I can live however I want. It doesn't matter. I'm going to go to heaven anyway when I die. It is what it is. It's not that either. Because very clearly there is an if and a then with God. He says it's also not God plus me. It's not God works if I join him and partner with him and he meets me halfway. I do my part. He does his part. And together we are a team. That's also not it. He says, here's the only way you can really understand, the fourth way. God in me. God in me. It doesn't take away the me aspect, but it doesn't diminish in one bit the necessity of God in the conversation and in the the work of grace and the work of reformation. It's God who works in us, Paul says. Maybe look this verse up later. Excuse me, i got something in my throat today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Go look it up. Where it says, God works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, what God works in you, we're called to work out. That's what he says. What he works in, we work out. It's as he works in that we want to do what God wants us to do. It's as he works in that we are actually able to begin to do what God wants us to do. Our lives really do become, as it describes in verse 11, a spring whose waters never fail. A spring creates a garden around it, but in order for a spring to create a garden, it's got to have a water bubbling up from below, right? It's got to have a source. If the source runs dry, the spring doesn't produce fruit. And this is the way it is. It's like the ecosystem of grace that Isaiah is describing here. It's a whole different way to live the the Christian life. It's not the drudgery that Israel was trying to put themselves through, sort of whipping themselves and getting more and more angry the more and more religious they got. This was something totally different. It was being overwhelmed by the infinite supply of God's grace. So that we would come to actually enjoy knowing God and living for him. Two things uh, as we close that you can notice here. There are two signs that the ecosystem of grace is working in your life. And the first one is you ought to see it in compassion. Compassion. That's the first if-then there, verses 9 to 12. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, stop pointing fingers, stop malicious talk, spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. The Lord will guide you always. You will be known, verse 12, as the repairer of broken walls and the restorer of streets to dwell in. What happens when God shows us his generosity When he shows us his generosity, it frees us from having to be so self-concerned and self-centered. If God has already taken care of me, why do I need to take care of me? In the way that I normally take care of me, which is this feverish, you know, anxious, all about me kind of way. If God has taken care of me, then I can truly rest in that and finally begin to look at other people. And so a great sign of reformation at work in your heart is that you're becoming more compassionate 
towards others. You're, you're becoming more self-forgetful in a good way. And God says the more self-forgetful we get, the more blessing we will taste from Him. The more His grace will become sweet to us. Then there's a second thing. It's joy. Not just compassion, but joy. He says, if you keep the Sabbath, if you call it a delight, if you don't just approach it as a, I'm doing this so that God does that, if you're saying, I'm doing this because God is just enjoyable, then guess what? Verse 14, you will find your joy, true joy, in the Lord. Again, there's a self-forgetfulness. As God gives us His mercy and grace and, and promises to meet us when we gather, when promises to meet us when we read Scripture, or when we pray, or when we fast, or whatever it is we do for the Lord, we have an opportunity to experience the sweet taste of unmerited blessing. And what that does is it increases, it should increase joy in our lives. A joy that comes, it says in verse 14, my favorite phrase in the whole passage. So we'll end on a bang here. I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. That's the amazing thing, right? Because if you know the context of this time in history, why was Israel fasting? Why were they keeping the Sabbath? What was it that they were trying to get from God? Well, it was those two things. They wanted the land back because they lost it. And they wanted the inheritance back that God gave to Abraham. But in their minds, the land and the inheritance were just about physical things. It was just about material prosperity. <clears throat> and they were driving themselves frustrated in the way that they were dealing with God because of that. But here it says, look, I'm going to give you those things, but it's going to be totally different than you think. It's going to be a massive spiritual blessing. Because the land is really just a symbol of me with you in a place. And the inheritance really is just about you knowing me face to face forever. Forever and forever. And so what you already are going to be given, land, and what you already are going to be given, inheritance, you're going to now receive it through the Lord's blessing as your feast. You're going to not just live in the land and be grumpy in the land, but you're going to ride in triumph in the land. You're not just going to have an inheritance from God. You're going to feast on your inheritance. That, that's the Christian life. That's it. You say, well, that doesn't feel the way I feel most of the time. All right. Go back to the beginning of chapter 58. Start there and review the lesson that we, taught, that we learned this morning. Go back to it and review. First of all, God shouts at me to say, where is my heart? Ask yourself, where is my heart? What do I really, why am I here? Why do I do things for God? Why do I believe in God? Why do I do any of this? Then recognize what exactly it is God's up to. He's not up to rubber stamping blueprints. He's not doing that. He's not a notarizer of my ideas. God comes to us with his own very much greater idea than any idea I've ever had. And then you can come back. Oh, let the grace shower on me so that I would recognize the ecosystem of God blesses, I respond, only to get more blessings to respond more, only to get more blessings to respond more, and this beautiful crescendo of grace. That's Reformation. Don't you want to pray for that? I know I do. Not just for you individually, but for our whole church, for our whole city. Amen?